I feel like I'm in this enormous lab of human knowledge that is being poured into me thanks to the magic of film, TV and entertainment. Very exciting. (laughs) People love what other people are passionate about. Cole Needham is the founder and CEO of IMDb, the 32nd most visited website in the whole world at time of recording. Launching in 1990, IMDb was one of the first 100 websites in the world, and it's one of extremely few that have survived to this day. It didn't start out as a business, it was just a way for film lovers to geek out. In fact, Cole admits they didn't really think it would go anywhere. Two years after Cole became IMDb's first paid full-time employee, the company became one of Amazon's first acquisitions, way back in 1998. This makes Cole one of the 40 longest tenured Amazon employees and means he has learned plenty from spending time with one of the best entrepreneurs the world has ever seen, Jeff Bezos. With over 10 million titles, 11.5 million entries for people, and 83 million registered users, it's easy to understand why the utterly ubiquitous movie database is the go-to for people whenever they can't quite place where they've seen that actor before. Now, I think of myself as a movie buff, but Cole obviously put me to shame. Despite being in the game for decades, Cole is still as passionate as ever, and it is incredibly infectious. But how many films has he seen? 14,939 since the 1st of January 1980. 100% true. And by the way, that doesn't include repeat viewing. So my all-time favourite film, Vertigo, I've seen it more than 50 times. That is one of the 14,939. So I'm, I'm edging towards my 15,000th unique movie some point over this summer. Wow. What are you going to do to celebrate? Oh, you know, I'll probably end up doing something. So I, I, I do this with all of the thousands. It's always a shame I think when 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 somebody, especially somebody who's no longer living or at least no longer working, um, when I've seen every film that they've made, then there's no there's there's no more surprises left to ha- to be had in their work, and and so what I do is I keep a kind of like selection of uh, mostly DVDs, <laughs> mostly DVDs because uh, these are mostly old films. And it's kind of like an old wine collection. So you would not drink all of your wine, your classic wine cellar in like one evening. And so I save them for special occasions. So my all-time favourite actress is Catherine Hepburn. And so I have a few unseen Catherine Hepburn movies. And so I may, for the 15,000th, if there isn't something that's, you know, going to be like a big dazzly premiere... Uh, I will grab one of those Catherine Hepburn DVDs and reduce my res- reduce my reserve of Catherine Hepburn movies. Wow. <laughs> not messing around. Okay, no. um, I've, I've I've got another one for you then. Favorite film and least favorite film. Do you have a least favorite film? I don't have a I don't have a least favorite film. I so I've I've rated all fourteen thousand nine hundred and thirty nine on IMDb, and there are a, there are a collection of one out of ten. 
one out of ten movies in in there, but I don't have a specific least favorite. But my all time favorite film is Alfred Hitchcock's Vertigo. I uh, we my wife and I were at the world premiere of Inception in July of 2010. The, uh, Inception is my number two favorite film of all time. It came it came close. Okay, so Cole, what are your top three quotes from all movies of all time? Your top three that people need to hear. Okay, so uh, this is my all-time favourite movie quote. It is from Grand Canyon from 1991. All of life's riddles are answered in the movies. My number two favourite quote is from La La Land. It's a line delivered by uh, Emma Stone. People love what other people are passionate about. And then my number three favourite quote is from Catherine Hepburn, my favourite actress, from the Philadelphia story. The time to make up your mind about people is never. That's brilliant. <laughs> so so the, 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 the beauty of film, television, entertainment is you can be taken on a journey to another culture, another country, another time, another place, an imagined world, a world that's like this one, but the constraints are kind of slightly different. Um, And you can get to learn what it might be like to experience that through the characters that you see on screen. And so I, I feel like I'm in this enormous lab of human knowledge that is being poured into me thanks to the magic of film, TV, and entertainment. Very exciting. (laughs) Beautifully said. Okay, Cole, we're going to learn a little bit more about your story. Where did your love of films come from? My first ever film in a cinema. So I was five years old. I was staying with my grandmother. And my grandmother said to me, would you like to enter a colouring competition? Uh, and I'm not sure if five-year-old me knew what a colouring competition was, but, you know, she handed me some felt-tip pens. And from the local newspaper, there was a scene from Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs. And you had to colour between the lines to make it into a nice picture. So I diligently did that. Uh, my grandma posted the competition entry off and a few weeks later, later a letter came through the post. Uh, I, actually, I actually have a copy <laughs> of the letter here announcing that I had won the colouring competition in my age group category and there were, the prize was two tickets to go see Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs at the local cinema. Uh, So I went along in a taxi with my grandmother and that was my first film in a cinema and I fell in love with cinema at that point. Uh, I can still feel the emotions that I was feeling when I first went, you know, when, you know, now, even now I'm talking about this several, many, many decades, many decades later. Um, so that's, that's how, that's how I got into film. And as soon as, as soon as we'd left the cinema, all I wanted to do was see more and more films. Now, all of this, you know, this this led my love of cinema, led to the creation of IMDb and, and everything that I did. And so about 15 years ago, I was talking to my grandmother about IMDb. And, uh, and we're having a lovely conversation. And I said, well, it's all thanks to that colouring competition that I won when I was five. And my grandmother looked at me and she went, 
Oh. I'm like, what do you mean? Oh. I just, well, I've got a terrible confession to make. And I'm kind of like, what what, what, what do you mean? What what do you mean? And she said, well, after you went to bed that night, I just couldn't help but go over all of the lines that you missed and all the colours that you got wrong. I looked at her and I'm like, you mean we cheated? in the colouring competition. And she's like, I'm terribly sorry, but but yes. And I, I don't know how well you know the movie Fight Club, but there's a scene in, 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 in the film where Ed Norton's character finds out what's really going on. And I have lived that moment in my life because my great love of cinema, my hobby, my passion in life, my job, my role, my career, everything that I do is down to a fraudulent colouring competition entry. You are living a lie. (laughs) That's right. (laughs) So there you go. That's how I got into cinema. (laughs) So take us past. So your granny's helped you, um, really set you up for life in the most unusual of ways. Can you give us the snapshot? How big is IMDb? Like how, you know, give us some of the the grandiose stats to explain to listeners that maybe who are younger who haven't used it before and don't know it, just the sheer size and scale of this this database. So so we have information on every film, TV show, video game, now music video, now podcast that that's ever existed all the way back to kind of like the late 1800s early experiments all the way forwards in future to the now the fifth avatar sequel which is now coming out in 2031 anything you could possibly imagine uh connected with those titles from who wrote directed who made them to trailers quotes plots keywords Absolutely anything that you can think of and anything that you would want to know about any kind of entertainment. We either have it or there's room for it within IMDb. And so that that, that covers more than 11 million titles uh, and 11, actually 11 million cast and crew uh, members and, and creators that have worked on those things, and including everything that you would want to know about the people behind your favorite bits of entertainment. So um, that's, kind of, that's kind of what we do. <laughs> okay, and where did it all start? So it all started with my obsession with, with film in the 1970s, I guess uh, I guess it's it's an interesting kind of story because there's there's an intersection between my passion for film and my interest in technology. So at quite an early age I got my very first home computer in the days when people did not have home computers. Okay. So so I was 12 years old, 1979, uh, got a got a computer for got a computer for Christmas. Um, and that kind of like sparked my interest in in technology. So I'm a kind of self-taught software engineer uh, before the term really even before the term really even existed. By 1981, the UK was in the middle of the VHS revolution. So VHS tapes were every everywhere you went, you could kind of rent a film on a VHS tape. And for me, this was like a dream come true. 
so no longer did they have to wait to go to the cinema or wait for a film to show on one of the three TV channels that we had in that time. You could go to the video store and rent a film. I began to see more films than I'd ever seen uh, before. Classic film geek moment in the summer of 1981. I was 14 years old and a family friend lent us a copy of Alien on VHS tape for two weeks. In 14 days, I watched Alien 14 times. So, so I'm kind of like you know my 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 film my film geek is kind of inner film geek is is growing, but this creates an interesting problem because I start to lose track of what I've seen and what I haven't seen. So the classic film geek thing to do is to go by go by a paper diary, which I did, and so I I would write down the names of every film that I saw on the day that I saw them. Now, but that's great for keeping track of what you've seen, but I'm, I'm also a great reader of credits. And I would kind of like see patterns of, oh, this person, this director often works with this composer, or this producer often works with this writer and that kind of thing. So I'm fascinated with kind of like the way films are made, but I'm completely, you know, I'm a teenager in Manchester, completely on the outside of the film world. But I'm interested in these connections. So, so I'm kind of like, well, you know what? I could go to my computer and create a database to track these films in more detail. So that's what that's simply what I did in the in the summer of 1981 and I, from that point onwards I would rewind the VHS tape after I'd watched the film, press play again and pause and type in the main credits, not every credit but the main credits for the film. And then I could run all of these different reports in my database, you know, kind of like how many, how many Alfred Hitchcock films uh, starring Cary Grant have I seen? Uh, and four is the answer, that, that kind of thing. So that was, that was fueling my knowledge of film and the connection then between what I saw and recording the credits in a database. I got online in the summer of 1985, and at that point, that's when I started to exchange email with other film fans around the world. So this is pre-web, okay? No World Wide Web at this point, but there were mailing lists for film buffs. Uh, And so, you know, you would discover, oh, wow, that my weird obsession with film that I thought only I had... Turns out there are other people like me around the around the world as well. And so that, that kind of progressed across the late 1980s until kind of like about 1989. And I found myself in a Usenet discussion group all about film and where you would post a message and then somebody would reply to the message and, you know, kind of like a little, you know, little message boards type thing, but still no World Wide Web. In that group, people would always ask, questions like, oh, I've just seen a new film directed by this person. I've just seen a new film in which this person appears. What else have they done? And so I would always kind of like, well, I've seen these five films by this person, or I've seen these 15 films by this person kind of thing. So there was kind of like a growing kind of Q&A kind of like thing going on. And the funny thing now is if this is one of these things where people like would look at you today and go, well, you want to know who worked on a film? Well, why don't you go to IMDb? 
so one of the people in the group began a frequently asked questions list all about actresses. And so I gave that person all of the actress credits that I had in my database and they incorporated them into their frequently asked questions list. And from that point onwards, Whenever I saw a new film, I wouldn't have to type in the actress names because I could pull them from this frequently asked questions list. But that was only of use for actresses. And I had actors, I had directors, composers, I had, you know, various crew roles that were in my database. So it was kind of like, well, we need we need more data. (laughs) We need more data. So in August of 1990, I posted an actors frequently asked questions list in the group. And as soon as I posted that in the group, people began to mail me actor credits for films that I hadn't seen. And it was kind of like, oh my goodness, this is working way better than I ever expected it would work. So within a couple of weeks, someone had mailed and said, oh, I love these acting frequently asked questions lists. I'm a big fan of directors. Why don't you do a director's frequently asked questions list? And it's kind of like, oh, yeah, that, that would be great. But I'm like busy with the on the actor's side. Um, so I said to the person who mailed, well, I mailed them back. <laughs> I mailed them back and I said, hey, how about would you like to volunteer? to manage a director's section. And they mailed back and said, yes, I gave them the directors of all the films I'd seen. Uh, I gave them some software to manage the data coming in, some software to publish it back out into the group on a monthly basis. And so we had actors, actresses, and directors. Then September into October 1990, one of the people in the group said, these these frequently asked questions lists are great, but what we could really do with is a database to search them. And so it was kind of like, okay, yeah, I could kind of like take a bit of the software that I've got already, kind of combine it here and there and kind of like make it work on any computer that was connected to the internet back in back in the day. And so on October the 17th, 1990, IMDB was launched. I published the software into the group and anybody connected to the internet back in those days, and it wasn't many people, (laughs) could download the software and have their own copy of the database on their own computer. Two weeks later, get an email from somebody going, hey, love the database, but I'm a big fan of writers. So you can imagine how that conversation went. Gave them the writers, they joined the team. Uh, Volunteer, remember, there's no commercial use of the internet. There's no World Wide Web. So we now had writers. A couple of weeks later, somebody pops up, I'm a big fan of composers. And so over the next few years, every few weeks, every month or so, somebody somewhere in the world would pop up and say, I really love this aspect of filmmaking or this aspect of TV. It'd be great if the database covered it. What do you think? And I would always say yes. And going back to going back to my movie quotes, of course, people love what other people are passionate about. So if there was somebody that cared enough that they wanted this type of content added to IMDb, I would always say, yeah, let's go. Let's let's see what happens. And sure enough, you you know, other fans of that content would begin to contribute to it. So we we grew, we grew like that. 
If you're trying to grow your startup and you're dealing with companies outside of the UK, you're probably going to need ISO 27001 at some point. It's not the sexiest acronym, but it's basically the global standard for proving your security practices are up to scratch, like how you handle customer data. The same goes with SOC 2. You're going to need it if you're a SaaS company. But achieving these security frameworks can be very tedious and very costly. This is where our partner Vanta comes in. Vanta automates up to 90% of the work for certifications like ISO 27001, SOC 2, GDPR, HIPAA, and more, getting you audit ready in weeks instead of months and saving you up to 85% of the cost. And as a special offer, our listeners get 20% off Vanta. Just head to vanta.com slash secretleaders. That's V-A-N-T-A dot com slash secretleaders for 20% off. There's a link in the description. Look, you know I'm fascinated by AI, but until the machines take over, there's only one thing that's going to determine your company's fortunes. People. This isn't some kind of hollow point to make me look good. If you speak privately to any successful entrepreneur, they'll confirm it's true. So, if you're a leader of a growing business, then you should check out Personio. It brings together all the important HR things like hiring, onboarding, payroll data, performance reviews, and so on. You don't want loads of employees sending you emails asking for time off. You want to be able to see things objectively, like it's taking you too long to hire. You want to do performance reviews well, having clear goals for people that are logged in a centralized system. And you want to do all these things in one simple tool without having to become an HR expert. All of this is possible with Personio. Check it out at personio.com forward slash secret leaders. That's personio.com forward slash secret leaders. There's a link in the show notes. Then the summer of 1993. So kind of of coming up to 30 years ago, I get an email from a guy called Rob Hartill. And Rob at the time was a PhD computer science student at Cardiff University in Wales. So I'm in Bristol in the southwest. Rob's about kind of like 40 miles that way. Uh, And Rob's email went something like this. Hey, Carl, uh, just installed the movie database software. I think it's really cool. Um, But have you heard of this worldwide web thing? because I think it might be quite big. Would love to write a wrapper around your software and we could have a website interface. I had heard of the World Wide Web. Um, uh, The person in the next office to me at work had written their own web browser. So I'd been out on the web. And in fact, just, just to set a little bit of historical context here, we were somewhere in the, in the first 100 ish, websites to launch you know the numbers are a bit a bit tricky to get hold of but but it was that order in in terms of in terms of how many sites there were out there and there used to be a website called what's new on the web and you could go to that website and it would list every website that went live in the previous day all two or three of them you could go back through history and visit the entire web just by working your <laughs> working your way backwards. So very, 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 very early days. Um, we soon filled up all the spare capacity at Cardiff University. So we ended up with copies of IMDB on university web servers just spread 
throughout the world. 1995, the web suddenly hits like more mainstream than it had been up to that point. And in a two-week period, our traffic doubled. Then two weeks later, it doubled again. Then two weeks later, it doubled again. And two weeks later, it doubled again. And, and our little tiny hobby that, you know, I was doing this on the, I was doing this on a Saturday morning before I took my daughters to the park on Saturday afternoon. This little tiny hobby was suddenly becoming this uncontrollable monster where the, you know, the volume of data to coming in for us to process was doubling every two weeks. Um, we were constantly scrambling to get other copies of the site on other university web servers so that we could cope with the traffic growth and it was it was just kind of like oh my goodness what do we do and we were faced with there were there were two possible alternatives that we could see number one was we could say that was a fun five years but we can't do it anymore and we just closed down and quite a lot of those early day sites closed down or number two we could see if we could sell some advertising and maybe one or two of us might work part-time on keeping the database up to date. Now, here here we are in 2023. This sounds ridiculous. (laughs) It's kind of like you were, you were online for five years and you, you didn't, you didn't think there might be a business in here somewhere. And and you were full-time somewhere else, right? Yes. Yeah, 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 yeah. So, uh, so I was, uh, I was working for Hewlett Packard in in Bristol in yeah. their research labs. Everybody else on the team, everybody else on the team had a full time job or was in full time education. This was just our little hobby. Uh, you know, we we wanted to share our love of film, TV, and entertainment with other people online. That's what we were doing this. That's what we were doing this for. This and and it's basically still what we're doing this for in 2023. And again, for context, you could count the number of websites that were advertising supported on two hands. And you, you know, you didn't necessarily know if they were profitable, if they were going to be around. Uh, you know, this was a whole brand new business area. So we decided that we would try. And so we incorporated in across kind of like 95, we we, we kind of like, we agonized over, you know, what would our customers think? What would our contributors think? You know, what would happen? Where would this go? We kind of like figured out how we would divide the share capital of our about to be incorporated company. Uh, We figured out a little formula that depended upon how long you'd been involved and how much uh, effort you were donating into the project kind of thing. So so we came up with an allocation of shares that everybody was happy with. Uh, we incorporated in January 1996 as a UK limited company. IMDb was up and running. We launched imdb.com in time for the Oscars in 1996. To do that, we needed a web server. And this, this is, you know, this is before AWS <laughs> or, or anything like this. So we needed to buy a web server. 
So we sent one of our team out in Wisconsin, of all places, to his local computer store with one of our credit card numbers. He bought a PC that we could repurpose as a web server. We negotiated with his local internet service provider to give us free hosting (laughs) in exchange for promotion on the homepage kind of thing. And as I say, imdb.com went live in time for the Oscars in 96. Six. Two weeks later, I am on the phone to our first potential advertiser. They have never bought any advertising before. I have never sold any advertising before. So they're like, so uh, how much is it for a month? And I'm kind of like, a month, a month. <laughs> and and so, so, so the number that came into my head was three times what we owed on the credit card. And they went, sure, we can do that. Deal done. We paid off the credit card in the interest-free four weeks (laughs) and thus became the world's first profitable internet company. You know, I might be romanticizing that a little bit. Maybe there were some people making a profit on the internet. We will we will take we will delete these caveats. <laughs> <laughs> That's artistic control. Sounded much better. It sounded plausible as well. I mean, let's be honest. Uh, so we immediately bought some more web servers um, and in the summer of 96 We sold our first piece of advertising that was to a film studio. So we sold some advertising to 20th Century Fox for the film Independence Day, launching July, early July in the USA. And that was my cue to quit my day job. It's kind of like, okay, look, we're now selling advertising to film studios I think this has a chance at turning out well. So I became our first employee. All of the other volunteer shareholders are all still working on a volunteer basis, but they have their shares. As the revenue run rate grew to cover another salary, I would call up the next volunteer shareholder (laughs) and say, hey, you can quit your day job and join the team. So we gradually were converting our volunteer shareholders into paid employees. And that was working very, very well across the rest of 96, across 1997. And then in December 97, I get an email from a guy called Alan Kaplan. Hi, Carl. Jeff Bezos and I were discussing movie websites the other day. Naturally, IMDb came up in the conversation. We're going to be in the UK in January 98 and would love to meet to discuss some business ideas. So it's kind of like, you know, oh, okay, yeah, that, that sounds good. You know, um, mailed back and said, yeah, you know, here's, here's some availability, uh, that kind of thing. Now, imagine you're running a startup in 2023 and you get an email like that. Before you've even replied, you're going to be breaking out the exit champagne. Uh, you're going to be on Tesla.com booking a test drive. However, December 97, Amazon.com only sold books. They'd only been a publicly traded company for seven months and they had never acquired another company at that point. So we thought we were going along to discuss the ad deal that we had with Amazon. So Amazon were advertising books on the IMDb website. 
And so we we went along to uh, myself and one of the other team members who happened to also be called Alan. <laughs> so myself and Alan and then Alan and Jeff met us in this hotel room in London and we exchanged kind of founding stories. And then Jeff said, well, I expect you want to know why we called this meeting. And so I said, well, to, to talk about our advertising deal. And then Jeff looks at Alan and he goes, are we advertising with these guys? <laughs> and gives us a huge Jeff Bezos trademark laugh, leaving myself and Alan looking kind of confused, at kind of like, what's, what's going on here? And then Jeff went on to explain what was going on there. Amazon would be going from selling books to music. And then later in 1998, they were going to open an online video store. And they were looking for people to partner with in this venture. And anything would be possible from a licensing deal where Amazon would take the IMDb content and build a great web experience for purchasing VHS tapes and these shiny new round things called DVDs, if they ever catch on, all the way through to possibly an acquisition. And an acquisition was the most attractive option from Jeff's perspective. He, that's what he said. Uh, and so we, we, we discussed, we went for lunch, we came back from lunch, we chatted further. And it became so clear that Jeff had a brilliant vision for where Amazon was going and how IMDb could ride along to that destination. Amazon would build an amazing video store experience and IMDb could continue to build an end customer experience where the information was optimized for browsing, uh, searching, uh, and that kind of that kind of thing. So, so it's kind of like, oh, okay, okay, that's that's what happened. You know, I came back from London, I mailed the rest of the team and said, hey, just had this like most amazing meeting with this guy Jeff Bezos in a hotel room in London. What do you think? So some of the team mailed back were kind of like, oh, I don't know about that. You know, like I, I've, I've just looked up Amazon online and they're, they're losing money. <laughs> Nobody knows if there's any future in e-commerce. And here we are, like IMDb was and is profitable. <laughs> So at the time we had this meeting with Jeff, we were more profitable than Amazon because Amazon were at the time not profitable. I went over to Seattle in like the February of 98, met the Amazon leadership team, um, kind of found out more about what was going on and how things would work and everything. And one thing led to another. And on the 24th of April, 1998, IMDb became Amazon's first acquisition. The funny thing was, we were their first acquisition, but on the same day, Amazon announced two other acquisitions. So we kind of, we're jostling for who is, who is the first acquisition here? Because Amazon acquired a UK bookseller, which became Amazon.co.uk, a German bookseller, which became Amazon.de, and IMDb, which remains IMDb. So in the media, like the coverage at the time was kind of like, Seattle bookseller buys UK bookseller, check. Seattle bookseller buys German bookseller, check. Seattle bookseller buys entertainment database, uh? It didn't stop there. So a few years later, 
Amazon launched downloadable film and TV. Now, this is before the internet was fast enough to do live streaming or, you know, real-time streaming. You could go to Amazon, you could buy a film or you could buy a TV episode and it would take like three hours <laughs> to download this thing onto your laptop. And then you could, you know, you could then watch. And, and by the way, you could only watch it on your laptop because the idea, how would you connect a laptop to a TV? You know, all of this kind of, you know, things that we take for granted now in technology were, were kind of like, these were brand new cutting edge cutting edge things so uh, so all of the the uh, amazon's video on, on online video store powered by imdb then the internet was fast enough to stream so amazon instant video launched powered by imdb then amazon studios opened and amazon started to get into the production of film and tv and it's kind of like people are like ah okay that's why amazon bought imdb have you ever discussed whether you were uh, prescient enough to take shares for enough of it? Oh yes, yeah, I, 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 I'm happy to do. I'm happy to discuss that. Yeah, we did a. Thank goodness it was a stock. major, major portion stock, smaller portion uh, cash acquisition. Ninety percent of the time, what you would want to avoid this one time, absolutely the right way to play. It. Correct. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But of course, you can only you can only kind of tell that in hindsight. And of course, there have been you know rides up and down along the way. When it comes to Jeff, obviously, you got into the Amazon story extremely early. Then yes. Were there other opportunities through the years to properly interface with him? Or was it like, you know, that's uh, in reality very difficult for a man running a business and doing a whole bunch of acquisitions? Uh, No, Jeff and I are still friends to this day. I only saw him last month. Amazing. <laughs> and has, has, has he changed? As no. in, we all change, of course, so it's a very loaded question. I'm sure listeners would be very curious, right? Because he's arguably one of the most famous and most successful men in the whole entire world. So what's he like? How would you describe Jeff? Uh, Jeff is very passionate, very smart, and very enthusiastic. And he knows, he knows what he wants. And he is brilliant at uh, working with customers and building the best products that, that people can ever dream of wanting. So incredibly, incredibly creative and uh, an all-round nice guy. And what lessons have you personally learned from him? Because, you know, you it's interesting, right? You went from a database nerd doing your own thing for fun to this crazy <laughs> moment in time, this crazy moment in time where... Uh, one of the great entrepreneurs of all time has acquired your company, built a strategy around it, and actually, you know, reading in the uh, the background notes around you, you know, you're still there. You're one of the longest tenured employees at Amazon. You know, it's it's fascinating. So, you know, you're like a really integral part of this story. What kind of things? Did you learn from Jeff that you think if you'd have carried on without Jeff's guidance, without Amazon, that you would have missed? So Amazon's vision is to be the world's most customer-centric company. That customer focus comes from Jeff and it just permeates throughout and it's one of the things that I think has worked quite well between IMDb and Amazon. So IMDb still to this day 
the data on IMDb is contributed by our customers, our customer contributors. Now, many of those are ordinary film and TV fans spread throughout the world who are sharing their knowledge of their latest show, their favourite director, their favourite star. Increasingly, those people are people in the entertainment industry also you know, updating information about their clients or about themselves or about the project that they've uh, that they've worked on. So, so IMDb is a site and a, an app entirely built from its customers, and so I think that helps us be naturally predisposed to being customer focused because we genuinely are nothing without our customers. You know, when you came up in the original internet era and this was a period where people didn't understand what was really coming and um, it got built sort of slowly over time and like all exponential things you know really starts to gain momentum and build we're now obviously at a precipice of a new revolution with artificial intelligence how do those conversations within imdb and within ai go one of the beautiful things about imdb being kind of like at this entertainment and technology intersection is that every year technology gets faster, more powerful or cheaper and you can kind of like deliver experiences that you would never have thought were possible just just a few years earlier. So specifically specifically on AI, I think the first thing I would say is that uh, the old adage constant change is here to stay (laughs) specifically for ai like i i can't you know i I can't reveal future product plans (laughs) but but i can i can kind of like i can talk in in general terms here in that you can you can imagine scenarios where if you want to get uh if you want to get a feel for what the critical consensus for a particular film or show is Today, you can go out and read, you know, hundreds of customer reviews on IMDb or scores of uh, critics' reviews uh, linked to from from IMDb. And and so these large language models are going to be great for kind of like, well, okay, take this data and give me four paragraphs on why I should watch this movie. The strength there can be in the personalization, not just the summarization, because you don't necessarily want a summary of every review that's out there. You want to be able to think about, well, you know, how will this film or how will this show speak to me? Um, Cole, you seem obviously like an exceptionally upbeat person, and why not? You've got to live your geeky passion your entire life, and it's gone extremely well for you as well, which, you know, anyone listening... Um, can feel that infectious energy to know that you know you just feel like you deserve your own success you feel like you deserve to be on the journey that you're on so we also get the other side of humanity in there can you describe a really bad day at IMDb <laughs> over the last 30 odd years what have been some of the really tough moments um, where you've had to dig a bit deeper yeah 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 sure um, so there we were back in 1998 and one of the one of the things that we had done is when we incorporated IMDb, as well as allocating shares to the people who wrote the software and managed the data and, and that kind of thing, we also gave a token number of shares to people who had been previously involved but were no longer active. 
And we also gave some shares to our top data contributors. You know, more, more just, a, you, know, you know, they got a share certificate with kind of like, you know, an IMDb share certificate. And, you know, it was a, more a, a token of appreciation uh, just to say thank you. When we were in the deep negotiations <laughs> heading towards the end, it was kind of like, oh, wow, there are a lot of shareholders here. There are typically more small shareholders in this company than, than you would, you know, than typically the rules for the acquisition of a large public company, of a small privately held company. You're kind of pushing the edge of small privately held companies. So what we would like to do is simplify this and we would like to buy out in cash any of the shareholders who are not involved in the business on a day-to-day basis kind of thing. Yeah, so what we, what we need is we need to get everybody to sign a sales agreement for their shares wherever they are in the world. And we need this in 24 hours' time. And because we were in like the final few days of the acquisition and this little snag had kind of come up in that final few days. And it's kind of like, Okay, okay. Remember, this is 1998. So, so the internet was a lot smaller. Um, the idea of people, there, there were no social media sites. <laughs> so the idea of being able to find somebody online and contact them. And so in our case, you know, these were people that we'd delivered a share certificate to two years ago. And they were now on, you know, they were, they were somewhere else in the world. They were on a different email provider and, and whatever. And so, so I had 24 hours to get around 25 people to sign an agreement to, to sell their shares. <laughs> and get up in the morning. I, I drew up a, a list of, I put everybody into a set of time zones where I thought they were. <laughs> And then, and then, as as the day ticked on, <laughs> I would be all right. Okay, now I can try and reach this person in this time zone because they're gonna be awake. I think I did the last one by two a.m. two a.m. on the day, and in the end, everybody everybody signed. But yeah, that was kind of a that was a kind of crazy, unexpected spanner in the works in terms of the acquisition. Right at the end, uh, right at the end. Um, so. Difficult decisions. We had, in 1999, uh, we launched uh, the IMDb message boards, which allowed people on every name and every title on IMDb, you could have a discussion about that person or about that title. Um, And when we launched, it was absolutely great. It was a great additional feature to the site. Um, uh, you know, you could go to all kinds of obscure films and there would be active discussions by fans of that film, no matter, you know, no matter how small, you know, you would find, oh my goodness, I, I can't believe. And, you know, sometimes like, uh, filmmakers would come and join in the discussions on their, on their own films. And that was, that was 99. And across that, across that time, we saw a lot of growth in those message boards, in those discussions. But somewhere, somewhere in the growth of the internet, people started to look towards negativity. 
And as you said, I'm kind of like a positive kind of person. So people would show up on the message boards determined to cause trouble. Um, you know, what's the most provocative thing I can say in this group? That negativity, unfortunately, grew and grew uh, to the point at which the regular customers who had been enjoying those message boards, every time they went, they would go there and it would just be kind of like a, a cesspit of toxic discussions. In that period, the number of what we would call like, you know, true IMDb customers, you know, the film fans, the entertainment fans, the TV fans that came to IMDb for great recommendations of things to watch, great, you know, great kind of like content and like things that they enjoyed about IMDb. The number of those people that would venture into those boards was kind of like on a diminishing track. And the number of people that were there to cause trouble was 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 kind of like we're dominating the conversation kind of thing. So so we took a very, very difficult decision, which was to just close those boards, close those boards down. And that was that was a real that was a real struggle. And and for me, I was the holdout. <laughs> So the team were the team were kind of like no we we've got you know we've we we're just we're just spending so much effort and there's so much negativity in these boards and and I was like you know but this is where we this is where we came from you know we came from you know those kind of those kind of discussions and in the end you know we we just we we really had no alternative and so we shut the boards down that was in February 2017. And we got a lot of flack for that, but it was the right thing to do. Give my time over again. I think I would maybe have, you know, maybe have tried to do things differently in the earlier days. That that we made some decisions that kind of led to where things ended up. So basically, managing managing public conversation on the internet is incredibly hard. And I really, I'm not sure you can point at any site and say, aha, they, they have cracked it, at least at scale. So the world is going to look very different in 10 years with the rise of AI. We discussed that very briefly. If you were entering the workforce now, what career advice would you hope to receive from someone who might have as much experience as you, might be as wise as you, that's going to help them on the right path to success? Be aware of the technology that you have available and at your disposal. Try and make the best use of that technology that you can to fulfill the customer need that you have. And keep an eye on where things are going, but don't obsess over what the future is. Build things with the technology that you have today and technology will just get better around you. What is the most unexpected lesson you've learned while running your business? We present an annual plan to the Amazon senior leadership team every year. And at this meeting was Jeff Wilkie, who at the time that he left Amazon, was the CEO of Amazon's worldwide retail operation. And so Jeff's reading our plan for the, for the upcoming year. And, uh, and he goes, so you're around 80 people, right? This was back in 2006. Uh, you're around 80 people. All right, get ready for a rough ride. 
and I'm kind of like, what, what, sorry, what, what do you, what, what do you mean? And Jeff said, well, I bet this is true, isn't it? And he said, he said, I bet you meet everybody who joins IMDb. I bet you know them. I bet you know a little bit of social context about them. And I bet you could have a conversation with everybody who's on your team like today. And I said, yep, that's pretty much, that is pretty much true, uh, Jeff. Thank you. Yeah, that is correct. Uh, and he goes, well, this is, this is the point that smaller companies as they're growing hit this kind of like inflection point somewhere in the 75 to 100 people. And, and all of a sudden... You cannot have that personal connection with everybody in the team. And that is, that is when you need to ensure that you've built your business to scale, that you have a team beneath you that knows where the company is going, knows how they do, how we do things at the company and knows how to stay focused because the company won't have your personal fingerprints all over it from pretty much this point onwards. And he was dead right. And it really did shape how we recruit, train and grow the team at IMDB and has seen us through, you know, significantly more, significantly more scaling since then. Okay, you have a time machine and you can go back and tell your younger self one piece of advice. What is it going to be? I'm a great believer in I I wouldn't change a thing. Even the hard things have taught me lessons and have led me to, to where I am today. Beautiful answer. Okay, Cole, I could talk to you for hours and very rarely for a guest, I can tell that you would talk to me for hours. Uh, I'm going to end with your own request. You got five minutes to tell the Amy Adams story. Oh, 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 oh! I've got a better story than than the Amy Adams story. <laughs> oh, blimey! You told me to remind you of that. If I've got five minutes to tell you a story over the course of IMDb's history, I've been very fortunate to have access to all kinds of events, which for me as a movie buff are beyond my wildest dreams. And so one of my top five life experiences is when my wife and I went to the Oscars for the first time in 2013. And we we walked the red carpet. We It was like the, the most uh, amazing night. It was a great night at the Oscars. Afterwards, I got to meet Steven Spielberg at the Oscar after party and discovered that Steven was a big IMDb fan. We are there in 2017, and I shake in hands with none other than acting legend Shirley MacLaine. So, so she's telling us these stories, and then all of a sudden she goes, oh, 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 um, um, has anybody seen Charlie's Theron? I'm presenting an award with her tonight. Um, if you see her come in, I've arranged to meet her here. So, you know, beckon, beckon her over. It's just kind of like, okay, okay. So sensing the lull in the conversation, I say, so surely you're presenting an award tonight. When you open the envelope, make sure that you read the right name of the winner. You know, you can't just insert your favourite film as the, uh, as the answer. She goes, why? Well, what would happen if I misread the envelope? 
I said, well, if you were to do that, the PricewaterhouseCoopers team will storm the stage uh, and they will stop the proceedings and they will take over and announce the correct winner. And Shirley McLean looks at me and she goes, really? Has, has it ever actually happened? And I said, nope. Not happened as yet, surely. And she's like, right, well, I will make sure I read that envelope correctly. Flash forward three hours later. On the stage are Faye Dunaway and Warren Beatty opening the envelope for the best picture when they misannounce La La Land (laughs) as the winner. And things don't quite go as smoothly with that rush onto the stage. (laughs) and correct the mistake but eventually you know eventually they do indeed and we were in the audience when all of that was going on if you look at the tv broadcast it doesn't what we could see in the audience there were people with clipboards and headsets like running around the stage and you know before the before the mistake was corrected and and so and then all i could think was oh my goodness what's gonna be going through shirley mclean's head Now, because, do you know who is Shirley MacLaine's little brother? I do not. Warren Beatty. Oh, wow. (laughs) A couple of months later, I got to meet Barry Jenkins, who won for Moonlight, you know, but only once they'd fixed the envelope mix-up. And I I, I I said to Barry, can I tell you my story about what happened that night? And he said, sure, go ahead. And then he looks at me and he goes, that explains it. And he said, well... He had done all these chat show interviews and everything following the following the ceremony. And they would often show like the clip from the night, from the TV broadcast. And he said that the camera goes across the audience showing different celebrities reacting to the wrong envelope, the, the wrong name, be it the wrong movie title being read out from the envelope. And Barry said, nobody looks more surprised than Shirley MacLaine. <laughs> That's so funny. She must have thought you were a mystic. That's right. Yeah. Well, Cole, all I can say is thank you for coming on Secret Leaders and sharing your stories, your energy, your passion, which just remarkably seeps through in every moment of detail. And I hope that you're you're staying there for another 30 years to continue to build it into the brilliant, helpful resource that it is on the internet for movie buffs just like me. So thank you. Thank you. It's been great. I always love talking about IMDb, so very happy to be here. Thanks again to Cole Needham, a fantastic story about how following your bliss can sometimes be the smartest move. Here at Mindset Win, we want to give you the tools to become better at what you do. Taking inspiration and wisdom from our guests, we will hear stories, strategies, tips and tricks. Told by leading names in sport and beyond who know what it takes to get to the very top. There will be two episodes each week packed with amazing stories and practical takeaways for us all to follow. Search for Mindset Win on YouTube and on your favorite podcast app. Thanks for listening to this episode of Secret Leaders. I've been your host, Dan Murray-Serta. The episode was produced by Ruth Edwards and Sol Harris. It was brought together by our head of podcast, Will Stolleman.